You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome, everyone, to Teller from Jerusalem, Season 2, Episode 24. For those interested in history, curious about true story of the early struggle to build the State of Israel, of its multiple challenges, various players, and the countless miracles, as well as those intrigued by our character lessons, which are every fourth episode and are the source of very enthusiastic correspondence, I encourage you to listen to the earlier episodes. Each episode may be listened to and fully understood without any previous information from the previous episode. Everyone is a standalone. For those of you engaged in Passover cleaning, here is a really good time and fantab opportunity to catch up on missed episodes. And do not forget to subscribe. Just the other week, I encouraged a gentleman and a group that I had guided in Yad Vashem to listen to the latest episode of Teller from Jerusalem, and he told me that he recently started listening and subscribed. Two points to him for subscribing. But he has started at the beginning and is going in order. I'm also fine with this approach as well. And one last useful factoid, the first 15 episodes of Teller from Jerusalem may be viewed via YouTube, or if you wish, you can also access them from my website, www.hanachteller.com. If you're intrigued to see some pretty spiffy visuals, it really pays to view those earlier episodes. Every time an individual or place is mentioned, you'll be able to see what he or she looks like, or looked like, and some other eye candy. Before we begin this episode, let us thank in advance the fantab work of our very clever and talented sound engineer, Howard Felson. <laughs> Lastly, please listen at the end of the episode for an important announcement. Finally, we begin. The Holocaust and the State of Israel were organically connected. The murder of well over six million Jews was a prime causative factor in the creation of the State of Israel. This was in accordance with an ancient and powerfully dynamic of Jewish history that historian Paul Johnson has referred to as redemption through suffering. The objections to Zionist fulfillment were still considerable after the conclusion of World War II. It was not enough to defeat Hitler. It was also necessary to remove any objections from the three victorious allies, Britain, the United States, and Soviet Russia. A Jewish brigade was formed of soldiers from Palestine in World War II, but the British were always apprehensive of giving Jews military training. The Jews in Israel had a strong ally in Churchill who pushed this through. He said on July 12, 1944, I like the idea of Jews trying to get at the murderers of their fellow countrymen in Central Europe. It's with the Germans that they have their quarrel. I cannot conceive why this martyred race scattered about the world and suffering as no other race has done at this juncture, should be denied the satisfaction of having a flag. Two months later, the Jewish Brigade, 25,000 strong, was formed. This unit would be very useful to Israel four years later. Yet the British had no intention of reversing their Palestine policy. Overthrowing Hitler had impoverished them and made their Middle East oil fields more, not less important. The United Kingdom fought literally around the globe. It was a massive colonial empire 
with holdings in nearly every corner of the world. As German and Japanese expansion threatened their holdings, they expended enormous amounts of blood and treasure to stop them, as well as anti-colonial rebellions. But eventually, the war was over. Britain, with its allies, was triumphant, victorious, and utterly, utterly broke. The British had no intention of permitting a level of Jewish immigration that would make the Arab world even more hostile and could endanger their importation of oil. To maintain their friendship with the Arabs, the British banned Jewish immigration to Palestine, and if illegal immigrants managed to sneak in, the British would capture and deport them. In a forthcoming episode, we will be privileged to interview Ambassador Daniel Taub, who served as Israel's ambassador to Great Britain from 2011 to 2015, who will discuss the Balfour Declaration with a perspective that we have not previously offered. In order to best understand the betrayal that British policy meant for their mandatory authority, let us return for a moment to the Balfour Declaration of 1917, as it is a good platform to introduce today's subject. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. In 1917, Lord Allenby conquered the Holy Land, and the Jews were promised a national home in Palestine by the Earl of Balfour, a policy endorsed by Woodrow Wilson and by the League of Nations, which made Palestine a British mandate. The entrance of General Allenby and the forces from the Egyptian Expeditionary Force into Jerusalem on the 11th of December 1917 was in fact the culmination of the Restorationist dream, that dream which had been relevant within British Christian circles especially, but also in other countries for several hundred years, a dream of the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. And so the coming of General Allenby here in 1917 really was the fulfillment uh, of much of that expectation from the previous few hundred years. The British entered Jerusalem in 1917, and right from the start, it was obvious, right to, uh, both to the Arabs and the Jews, that the British administration was anti-Zionist and strongly against uh, the return of the Jews. And from that time on, there wasn't uh, either a military governor or later on, apart from Sir Herbert Samuel, there wasn't even a civil governor who wasn't tainted with anti-Semitism. Before the government of Nazi Germany decided in 1941 to exterminate all the Jews in Europe, and with expansion of what it called the Thousand Year Reich, the plan was to conquer the entire world, and in the process rid the planet of Jews, its policy allowed the reduction of Jewish numbers in Europe through emigration. Jewish organizations, both mainstream and dissident, ran operations that tried to bring Jews from Europe to Palestine in violation of the immigration rules applied by the British government. This required cooperation with the Nazi authorities, who viewed this as an opportunity to make trouble for Britain, as well as get rid of Jews. Zentralstelle für jüdische Auswanderung, Central Office for Jewish Immigration, or the ZJA, worked under the supervision of Adolf Eichmann, organizing Jewish emigration from Nazi-controlled parts of Europe. In September of 1940, the ZJA chartered three ships, the SS Pacific, SS Milos, and the SS Atlantic, to take Jewish refugees from the Romanian port of Tulsia to Palestine. 
Their passengers consisted of about 3,600 refugees from the Jewish communities of Vienna, Danzig, and Prague. The Pacific reached Palestinian waters on November 1, 1940, followed by the Milos a few days later. The Royal Navy intercepted the ships and escorted them to the port of Haifa. Warned in advance of the ship's arrival, the British colonial office was determined to refuse entry to the immigrants. The colonial office decided it was less risky to provoke Jewish anger than to risk an Arab revolt, and they decided to make an example to dissuade other potential immigrants from making the attempt to arrive in Palestine. Again and again, we find the British attempt to teach the Jews a lesson and dissuade them from coming to Palestine when they have absolutely no other choice other than remaining under Nazi jurisdiction, which meant torture and annihilation. The British High Commissioner for Palestine, Sir Harold McMichael, issued a deportation order on November 20th for those who had just arrived on the ships, ordering that the refugees be taken to the British Indian Ocean Territory of Mauritius in the Caribbean Territory of Trinidad. Mauritius is an island nation in the Indian Ocean about 2,000 kilometers off the southeast coast of the African continent, east of Madagascar. Very, very east of Madagascar. By way of analogy, people think that New Zealand is right next to Australia when the distance is actually 4,155 kilometers, or nearly a four-hour flight. Madagascar has got to be one of the most isolated corners of the globe, making Mauritius all that more isolated. This meant banishing the Jewish refugees to the end of the world. A flight from Madagascar to Mauritius, which of course did not exist then, is two hours. And now, as a special treat for the listeners of Teller from Jerusalem, we will play a rendition of Mauritius's national anthem that I'm going to venture you have not heard before. As the lady said, Teller from Jerusalem will give you the education of a lifetime. Maestro, please, motherland, the national anthem of Mauritius. Islands get short national anthems. And if you are wondering why I am not affording equal representation and not playing for you the Madagascar's national anthem, surely that's going through some of your minds, the answer is that the national anthem is in Malagasy, and I was unsure if it would be appreciated by the bulk of the listening audience. 
I keep meaning to ask my producer how many people tune in to Teller from Jerusalem from Madagascar. This is a fine opportunity to make you aware of an interesting factoid that Madagascar is in East Africa. But in South Africa, at one point, Teller from Jerusalem had the highest rating of listeners for a new podcast. Back to our sad story. The refugees fleeing Nazi-occupied Europe for their very lives sought haven in their ancestral homeland only to be refused entrance by the British, who wished to appease the local Arabs. So these refugees were not allowed into the land of Israel, but were transferred to another ship, the SS Patria, for the voyage to Mauritius. Zionist organizations were considering how to thwart the deportation plan. A general strike was organized, but had little effect. Their gun tried unsuccessfully to place a bomb on the Patria to disable her. The Haganah also sought to disable the Patria with the intention of forcing her to stay in the port in Haifa for repairs and thus gaining time to press the British to rescind the deportation order. On the 25th of November, the Haganah placed a bomb aboard, but instead of just damaging the engine room and forcing lengthy repairs, it tore a large hole into the hull, resulting in the boat sinking, trapping hundreds in the hold. At the time of the sinking, the Patria was carrying about 1,800 Jewish refugees. Because of the explosion, 267 people were declared missing, over 200 Jewish refugees, 50 crew and British soldiers, and another 172 were injured. 209 bodies were eventually recovered and buried in Haifa. To afford this little-known disaster a little more attention and background, we're going to turn to a program from the Middle East Report Program dedicated to the 80th anniversary of the sinking of the SS Patria in Haifa with host Simon Barrett, who interviews renowned documentary filmmaker Hugh Kitson. Before listening to some selections from the interview, we have first pieced together some snippets from Hugh Kitson's documentary, The Forgotten Promise. The MacDonald White Paper of 1939 would seal the fate of European Jewry. It effectively blocked their escape route from the impending Holocaust. For the hundreds of thousands of Jews trying to escape the inferno they knew was descending upon them, there was nothing to lose but to try to reach the historic Jewish homeland in what was then known as Palestine in any way possible. The Jewish agency in Palestine, together with the underground organizations, had little option but to bring home the Jews in a clandestine operation called Ha'apala. The illegal immigrants, as the British referred to them, had one major obstacle, the Royal Navy. With the outbreak of war, the Jewish battle for survival off the shores of their promised land became more desperate. The British government wanted to send a clear signal to the Jews of Europe. The gates of Palestine were closed. However, instead of returning the Jews to a certain death in Europe, Britain interned them. The year before the war began, the British had built a detention camp on the coast at Adlit. For the final 10 years of the mandate, it served as the main detention camp for Jews on the soil of Eretz Israel. The less fortunate were deported and imprisoned elsewhere. The Atlantic arrived in Haifa, escorted by the Royal Navy in November 1940. 
Two other ships, the Milos and the Pacific, had arrived some weeks earlier, carrying another 1,800 refugees between them. The British authorities decided to deport the refugees from all three ships to Mauritius aboard a much larger ship, the Patria. The refugees from the earlier ships had been transferred and waited for the Atlantic to arrive. The Haganah attempted to disable the ship with an explosive charge to the hull. The Patria capsized and sank with the loss of 280 Jewish lives. Nearly 1,600 Jewish refugees who had escaped from Nazi-occupied Europe were taken to Mauritius. The men were imprisoned in the squalid conditions of the Beaubassin prison. The women and children were interned in a nearby prison camp. The men and women were segregated, even husbands and wives. One in ten of the refugees sent to Mauritius finished up in the cemetery on the island. Conditions were harsh, food scarce, and diseases such as typhoid took their toll. And now we turn to the actual interview between host Simon Barrett and the more elderly, less TV anchor kind of voice belonging to Hugh Kitson. Can you provide the kind of historical context to this, that, you know, here we are, that uh, Jewish people across Eastern Europe were fleeing for their lives with the advance of, of the Nazis. We, we started to see the, the horrendous persecution of the Jewish people, whatever, the, whatever country or nation the Nazis actually occupied, and the likes of Hungary uh, becoming part of the Axis powers as well, would have made it very, very difficult for these Jewish people to actually flee wouldn't it, um, the oncoming horrors of, uh, of the Nazi genocide? Yes, it was very, very difficult, and there was real fear among the Jewish communities, and uh, uh, most of those who uh, didn't flee actually perished in the Holocaust, and the Jewish people of even Eastern Europe at that time knew what the real dangers were, um, and they, they wanted to return to their ancestral homeland which, according to the mandate, should have been open to them. Absolutely. And uh, I think um, we also need to discuss as well why the British government implemented the Green and White Papers. You, you touched on it a little bit, because the most important one of all, I think, is the White Paper um, that, the, uh, that became law as part of the British government in 1939 that prevented Jewish immigration into the British Mandate of Palestine. And, and the government, British government at the time would have been fully aware, wouldn't they, of the fact that we saw in the 1930s the rise of fascism, the rise of Nazism on the continent. They would have realised the desperate state of uh, European Jewry um, before Hitler actually uh, invaded Poland on the, uh, in September uh, 1939. Well, it seems to me that the, um, the, the British government were prepared to use the Jews of Europe as, uh, as a sort of pawn. Now, just before the start of the war, a year before the start of the war, you had the Evian Conference of uh, July 1938 and Britain only participated in that conference, provided that Palestine was off the agenda as far as a, 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 a place where Jewish refugees could f uh, to flee to. And um, virtually every country that was represented at the uh, Evian conference actually refused to take them, uh, including the USA, I might add and countries like Australia. 
Britain did take, uh, later in 1938, uh, did take 10,000 uh, Jewish children in what's known as the kinder transport. But basically, uh, the Jewish people were hung out to dry. And one of the consequences of that was um, Hitler realized no one wanted the Jews. And he thought, well, I'll fix the problem. And the tragedy of the Holocaust, the Shoah, followed on from that. Absolutely. So it was entirely preventable in my opinion. And when we're discussing this period of history, you've got to understand really maybe two reasons why the British um, enforced the white paper. The first thing is they didn't want kind of Arab riots uh, with more Jewish immigration coming in, as you saw in the 20s and 30s. And also the other one was to secure Arab oil for the war effort. Well, um, were these the two main factors, of, and possibly even anti-Semitism as, as another factor in the British government, uh, in their decisions to prevent Jewish people fleeing from the Nazis to come into the British mandate in Palestine, the ancient homeland of the Jewish people? Well, that's true. Uh, I think oil certainly was, by that time, an issue. Um, there was also, I believe, a certain amount of anti-Semitism. But one of the reasons why uh, the, the British government introduced the white paper was because they didn't want the Palestinian Arabs to, to actually join forces with the Nazis, which they did anyway. And there's a famous meeting, of course, with the Grand Mufti, Hajimin al-Husseini, um, joining forces with Hitler not long after the Patria incident. Those who'd actually been on the Patria itself uh, when it sank and survived, and I gather about 1,500 people were rescued from the Patria, Winston Churchill actually allowed them to stay in Israel. Um, but the rest, about 1,600, were actually sent to Mauritius. I think it's very important to just get a, a reflection of British attitudes, and this is what the High Commissioner of the British Mandate Mandate of Palestine said, Harold uh, McMichael said at the time, he said, there is no basis for the Jewish population of Palestine to concern themselves with Jews who wish to immigrate from outside the country. Uh, he declared that if peaceful behavior uh, is not maintained, that he will activate the highest form of military martial law. Uh, why were the British authorities so hostile to the Jewish population, including those in the British Mandate of Palestine and those Jewish people that were on board the Pacha who ended up losing their lives because all they wanted was freedom? Well, all I can say about that is to sum it up in one word, anti-Semitism. Um, the British government actually, according to international law, had a, an obligation to take Jewish immigrants. It was a key part of the whole mandate. And what Britain did was, uh, I think Rena was very kind to us, actually. It was, it was not only a betrayal, but uh, it was a complete abrogation of our obligations under international law. The British government uh, should acknowledge uh, its betrayal of the British mandate and its treatment of the Jewish people in preventing the re-establishment of the modern state of Israel and also not uh, rescuing thousands, if not a couple of million 
Jewish lives who would have been saved had it not been for the British White Paper in 1939. Uh, we're down to the last two, uh, last dying minutes of the programme, Hugh, so I've got two very quick questions to ask you. Um, we know that SS uh, Pachia was, was actually destroyed or sunk uh, by a member of the Israeli underground, the Haganah, who planted a bomb and planted in the wrong part of the ship. Uh, which caused the death of anywhere from 218 to 267 uh, Jewish deaths and also British officers on board. Um, was it the British uh, white paper that was to blame for this or was it the Haganah to blame? It's questionable whether the Haganah should have actually blown the ship up. Well, they didn't blow it up. Their purpose was simply to disable it, to prevent it from sailing to Mauritius and they put it in the wrong part of the ship and they um, put too much explosive in, which resulted in the ship sinking. Um, but certainly that would not have happened if, as Rena said earlier, if the British had um, allowed all of those people who had arrived and given them certificates and there were enough of them there. Actually, at the end of the war, only just over half of the certificates have been issued anyway. So the whole lot of them could have stayed, uh, even under the terrible restrictions of the white paper. So I, it, it's the British. What the SS Pacha represents was all those thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, Jewish people that were trying to flee the terror of the Holocaust and the Nazi conquest across Europe. And uh, this also marks a dark chapter in Britain's history. Uh, a, a failure to actually implement the Balfour Declaration and the Sam Remo resolution, uh, resolution to prepare the Jewish people for self-determination. And secondly, maybe over a million Jewish lives could have been saved in the Holocaust if it wasn't for the British white paper. So we have a lot to say sorry for and we have a lot to repent over our actions during the 1930s and 40s. Our time has lapsed for this episode. Please note, because of the Passover holiday, followed by Israel Independence Day, the next episode will not drop until May 10th. Please note this hiatus for every time we take a break I get urgent messages inquiring if I am well. Thank you very much for your concern, and I look forward to speaking to you via our next episode, May 10th, 2023. Please, God. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit TellerFromJerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to TellerFromJerusalem.com.